Hey, thank you for coming. It's good to have you here. If I've not met you, my name is Luke. And happy birthday, Legacy Church. You turned seven today. I don't know if you knew that or not. Today is your seventh birthday. Let me explain what that means. We launched publicly seven years ago. We were kind of in gestation, I guess, in my living room for maybe eight, nine-ish months before then, where our family and the Gentry family, we parachuted in here and we started accumulating um, couples and families that were on mission, that were excited about being part of a church plant. The Meeks are here, they're out there. Raise your hand. Look at you good-looking guy there. So they were part of our original comm group. A couple of you others were as well, part of that original team that came together. And now, here it is, seven years after our launch. And let me remind when we launched, we dropped from 45 really super committed people all the way down to 19. So when we launched, we had 19 people. Half of us were doing something, like watching kids, or setting chairs up. It, I mean, it was just the beginning of a dream. And now we're in two locations, which I'm really excited about. So when we celebrate over the art form that is Chile today, we will have not just our site, but we will have the West site that will come over and celebrate with us. We will just give them a sound thumping in the Chile category. I know that for a fact because I have belief and trust in you. Um, but listen, we'd love for you to come out, and Mark's going to come up a little bit later on and give some of the details for that. You don't, have to you don't have to have Chile to come. You don't even have to be a part of Legacy Church to come. We would just love for you to come. Come and eat chili. Be a part of that. If you don't like chili, don't eat chili. Eat some of the dessert that's going to be strategically placed around the chili. If you don't want to eat dessert and you don't want to eat chili, just come and hang out with really cool people. It's going to be from 2 to 4 today. Really would love for you to come. But we're going to get on with the sermon. So if you have a Bible or a device, go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, we are still moving at a really good pace through our study on the Psalms, through a series that we're calling Anthem. I've really, really enjoyed this. This is going to be real helpful for you today. Um, I know I say this often, but this is going to be a passage that's going to show us Christ much more clearly. Psalm 22, I'm going to read. This is a Psalm of David. I'm going to go from verse 1, and we're going to stop somewhere around the middle and kind of recap our way through it. This is the word of the Lord for us today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of a lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Okay, we're going to pause right there. There is more to it, but I don't want to get too far from the um, earlier passages because it is kind of a longer psalm, but David is asking one of the most frightening questions anyone could possibly ask. It doesn't even matter the context. The most frightening question is, why have you forsaken me? Why have you, of all people, forsaken me, of all people? Why have you forsaken me? And like I said, it doesn't matter the setting. Just being abandoned, being left, being forsaken is a special kind of hell for us. You know, there's, a, there's an up-and-coming rapper. His name is N.F., NF is not his name. His name is Nathaniel Feuerstein. So, I mean, come on, now it's NF, right? <laughs> so NF, or Nathaniel Feuerstein, he's cut out a few good albums. Now, he is a rapper who happens to be a Christian, but he is not necessarily a Christian rapper, if you know what I mean. He's not spinning doctrine out there. He's kind of going from the gut as a Christian and as a rapper. But I think it's his third album, Therapy Session. Some of you might own it. Most of you probably never heard of this guy. He has a song that I think might be the song that put him on the map or made him at least more mainstream, and it's a song called How Could You Leave Us. NF is known from preaching from a very, very deep well of emotion, and this song, How Could You Leave Us, is centered around the fact that his mom had an overdose when he was a young man. I think 12, I think. And so these are some of the words to his song. It starts off with, How could you leave us so unexpected? We were waiting, we were waiting. For you, but you just left us. We needed you. I needed you. I got this picture in my room and it kills me, but I don't need a picture of my mom. I need the real thing. Now our relationship is something we won't ever have. Why do I feel like I lost something I never had? Listen, this isn't an anthem because everybody in here loves N NF. It's not, this is not an anthem because he's well known and this is heard all over the world in different languages. I mean, it's an anthem because he is expressing what it means to be forsaken and abandoned most than other people are able to do. I mean, there's memes all over the internet of people listening to this song and then immediately booking an appointment with their therapist because now they have abandonment issues they didn't know about. It's not really a song you go run to, you know? It's a song that you listen and you reflect on. Because feeling forsaken is unique in the fact that it takes feeling alone with feeling unlovable and it mixes them with a little bit of rejection mixed in. And that's just a lot for a person to bear. Now, Psalm 22 is considered a passion psalm. It actually, last week was too. Psalm 69 is also considered a passion psalm. Not passion because they're passionate, although they are, but passion because there are more direct lines drawn between the psalm and the passion of Jesus. It's really easy to see Christ in this. I mean, it's served up to where we can see it very plainly, mostly because of verse 1 being bellowed out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most people, maybe some of you in this room, didn't realize that came from Psalm 22. 
Jesus is quoting scripture in that moment. He's not just wailing, he is quoting scripture. Now I've made the case that all 150 Psalms point to or elevate Jesus or are fulfilled in Jesus, but this one gets the most press, I think. Now when it was written, when this was written, it was a true experience for David. Now this is kind of odd and it's been hard for a lot of scholars because what it's describing is not just a moment of suffering, it's describing an execution. But we don't, have any, we don't have anything in our records of David really going through something like this. So can we, can we argue with the fact that he's feeling it? No. He's going through something where he feels this. This is real for him. It's not fake news. But it does extend further for you and me today because of Jesus actually living it. And this can be confusing for people. So I'm going to walk through it. You know, to be honest with you, we're putting together material right now slowly, but we're putting together material for a how to study the Bible or a how to read the Bible course because there are concepts like this that can fall through the cracks a lot of times. But just to be very quick, these anthems, these psalms, were not just meant for God's people, but they were meant for God's people and for you. It's not like they made a, a lot of sense to them that it will never make to you. And it's not like it's clear for you, but it probably wasn't very clear for them. It was very fruitful, very effective for the original audience, and it is very fruitful and very effective for you and me today. It's both. Both can be true. David really felt this way, and he's also prophetic. He's also being prophetic in this moment, foretelling events that wouldn't happen for a millennia later. Right? Let me explain what I mean. I'm going to put Acts 29 up there. Acts is a fascinating passage. We're going to catch Peter. Peter's going to be in the middle of a passionate sermon. He's preaching to a lot of people. And in the middle of it, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this very day. Hey, he's in the grave. He's down the street and around the block. His body is in the tomb. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter's calling him a prophet right here. He's saying that David did something very prophetic, because God did promise David that there will always be a king in the Davidic line that will always sit on the throne. Now, Jesus would be the last king to sit on that throne. Right? Now, David didn't know when this was going to happen or where exactly this was going to happen or who his name would be or anything like that. But he knew that there would be a descendant from his bloodline that would eventually come and would beat death. He knew that with a solid conviction. I think that's pretty cool. He knew that. Peter goes on to say a little bit later in 1 Peter, this is going to be in 1 Peter, this is one of his letters, he kind of continues, it's interesting, it's the same author, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets, David being one of them, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All he's saying right now 
is that David would have loved to have seen the story that is so clear before you and me. David would have loved to have watched Jesus walk through the gospel stories, would have loved to have seen him do what he did, act like a king among commoners, would have loved and been moved by the cross and the empty tomb. He would have loved this. He didn't see it all then. He knew one thing, though. He knew he'd be serving you well in 2018, sitting here in Knoxville, Tennessee. He knew that. He knew that he would be serving you and me very well. I think this is very cool. Okay, Luke, it might be cool, but why does it matter? I think it matters because it, this is a great time to just really take a look at the fact that this is not a normal book. <laughs> this isn't a, this is, your Bible's not an ordinary book. It's very different. The architecture in it, the thoughtfulness of it, the kindness of it, the spirit-driven nature of it makes it beyond just even a masterfully written book. I mean, I've read some really good books. I have a big library at home. I'm a voracious reader. I've got some fantastic books, some that are so good I reread and reread. But I've never sat down in front of a book that interprets me, that is able to discern my, my motives and really crawl behind what I'm thinking. I've, I've never read a book that is perfectly inspired and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. I don't have any books that I sit in front of that are able to transcend all boundaries and go from people to people across oceans, from age to age and millennia to millennia. I don't have any books like that. And this means I can't approach this book like a normal book. It's different. It's different. I think treating your Bible like a basic book is more the motion and the movement of an atheist than it is a Christian. And I'm saying this because I think it's easy for a lot of us to sit down and read a book like an autobiography or a fantasy novel or something and kind of process what we're reading. We read words on a page, we process what it means, and we move on. And then we sit in front of the Bible and we do the exact same thing. And I think that's dangerous. This is what Craig Carter says. He's the author of a book called Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition. He says, nothing is more damaging to the Christian life than the attempt to secularize this act of reading. To do so is to act like an atheist. If reading in faith is how we become Christians, and he gets that from Romans, reading without faith is how we become atheists. So the stakes are high. I agree with him. I agree. Now, we don't worship the Bible, right? I mean, there's nothing magical about the Bible. It doesn't sprinkle pixie dust on your day and take dents out of your car. It doesn't do, we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God described in the Bible, so clearly described in the Bible. And this means that when we read the Bible, we read the Bible, it was intent, it was intent on being received. What I mean by that is, is anytime anyone writes anything, whether it's a treatise, a dissertation, a, a piece of law, a scribbled thing on a on a little memo sticker on the refrigerator. The author always wants the recipient to understand what's being written. There is a message trying to get across from A to B, right? I mean, we all can agree on that. And God, like any writer, is giving us a message. He's not trying to stump us. He doesn't intend for us all to go to high, high education for 50 years and get ourselves a nice decoder ring just to figure out what's going on in here. It's very plain. And what's most plain as we read the Bible is that he wrote it with the gospel story being the very soul and center, the very middle of his work, the very soul of it. 
that we have a God that rescues failed people. He does it over and over again, all throughout the Old Testament. And it all culminates in this beautiful passion of Jesus who comes and miraculously lives, dies, and lives again. So if that's true, why does this matter today? Because when we look at Psalms like Psalm 22, a passion psalm, missing Christ in this is totally missing the psalm. It really is. I mean, we, we would do just as well just to read the psalm all the way through, take 92 seconds or whatever, and we could just shut the Bibles and go home. It really won't really help you. I mean, what, what good is it if, unless you see Christ right in the very center of this? This is about Jesus. God inspired David to write a song. Jesus would later experience it to the fullness. And why would he do this? As a kindness to you, especially, especially if you feel forsaken. Left. Forgotten, abandoned, alone, unlovable. This psalm is for you. Written by David, something he experienced, forecasting Jesus, something Jesus lived, given to you, given to me, right? I mean, look at some of these passages. We tripped all the way through them as we read. Some of you, you were grabbing them right when we were moving through. I know you were. Verses 12 through 13. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. Bashan's just a place where cattle, like the best cattle, came from. It was the Fort Worth, Texas of the day, right? So if cattle came from Bashan, good cattle, you did well. Many bulls encompass him, especially the most elite bulls. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He's naming elite animals, strong animals, overpowering animals. Why? Because later on, a different king would feel the same thing. The elite of society flanking him while he's on the cross are in those fake courts, and they were closing in on him, and they were trying to devour him. Matthew 27, they're saying things like, let God deliver him. Let God get him down if he wants to get him down. You see, David had conflict around him when he wrote this. Jesus would take that conflict out to its furthest edge and boundary. But you can feel this too. You've had some of the same conflict. You've been intimidated by situations and by people. You've had what feels like the strongest and most elite close in on you, telling you that soon you will be destroyed. Certainly you felt this way. I felt this way. And then when we get to the very next verse, verses 14 through 15, he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my, stung, my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. And then a millennia later, we would see Jesus. We would see his body give all of its strength, all of it, in a garden through prayer, in those courts as he was shamed and mocked, up on the cross, all the way to death. We would see him yield all of his strength. If anyone was poured out, dried up, and melted, it was the Christ. So yes, David felt pain, and Jesus would later come along and carry that pain all the way to its limits. But you can feel it too. You feel pain. I know you do. I know everyone in here feels pain to a certain level. We, we actually talked about it a lot the last two weeks, how whenever you have emotional struggle or whenever you have spiritual struggle, isn't it interesting how our body starts to wear it? How our body starts to collapse under the weight of what we're struggling with. Let's look at verse 16. For dogs encompass me, another animal, by the way. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Hey, this was before crucifixion was even invented, by the way, just so you know that. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. And then a millennia later, we have the last king coming who would be pierced and extended over a shameful instrument of death. I mean, remember, the whole point of the crucifixion, it, it was two things, really. Excruciating pain. That's where we get the word excruciating, too, if you didn't know that. It's from the word crucifixion. That's where we get the word. Excruciating pain and excruciating shame. It was the most shameful way someone could die. Onlookers would come and they would stare and they would gloat at the horror of what was going on. People would walk by those crucifixion scenes and just stare, just wag their heads. Just what a shame. What a shame. Like we do a needless accident today when we're on the interstate or something like that. It even says later in Matthew, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, it says. You see, David had some shame upon him. Jesus would carry it out to its limits. But still, you can feel this, can't you? This level of shame. You've had people just stare at you, wag their heads, maybe gloat a little bit, saying things like, I told you that was going to happen. You should have listened to me. This was all needless what you're struggling and suffering through. This was your fault. You did this to yourself. We've all heard that. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was the one that jumps out and grabs most of the people, right? John 19, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, John says, that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is just mob mentality. Mob, it, humans are capable of some horrible things. Mobs are capable of horrible things at inappropriate times. Inappropriate times. If you get one person by themselves, they are capable of doing some horrible things. We all know that evil has a pretty long leash, especially today. But if you put a hundred of those people together, isn't it amazing how they become more of a bullying mob? I mean, what is looting if it's not that? When do you see looting except at a very inappropriate time? Hurricane comes through. You see people carrying big screen TVs right out of Best Buy. It's just it's an inappropriate time to, to flip cars over. Mob violence, that's what this is describing. So we see a brutal picture here by the mouth of David of something that would happen to the last king of his very own bloodline a full millennium later. And yet it is borrowable for you. It's transferable. It's helpful for you. It's agile for you and your average every day. David's song would later become Jesus' song is in fact your song. It's your song. This is yours. It's this, this psalm is very alive. It's very active. It's crossing centuries and language barriers and nations. It's applicable to us at our very core. Because, I mean, David's just crying out from a place of disorientation. That's how many of you walked in here. Psalm 22, for some of you, was Monday or Wednesday or whenever. You've been surrounded and mocked, drained, abused, judged, most importantly, forsaken, alone, abandoned, left, unloved. See, we're able to share these sufferings with Jesus. It's important that you understand how we share them. This is not a situation, by the way, where we read Psalm 22 and we see a picture of David handling his stuff over there and Jesus handling his stuff over there and we individually kind of handle our stuff in our own little backyard. Everyone's kind of handling their own stuff. This is communal. We're sharing a suffering with people. 
We're sharing them with David. Christ is sharing our sufferings with us. Consider when you are most abused, when you feel most mocked and judged, when you feel most alone, you don't even have to finish your sentence because Christ has shared that with you. He understands. This is why prayer in these moments are so key and are so good at building relationship because you don't have to explain. You don't have to explain how you feel to God. You don't have to find words to explain exactly what's going on in here, which is so hard for us anyway, right? You could just cry. And he gets it. He can interpret that. You could, it's just a big, deep exhale, a big, deep, oh my God, what am I going to do? He gets that. He's intuitive. You can pick that up. He has shared it with you. By the way, I think this is what Romans 8, 26 is trying to tell us. When Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't think that's talking about praying in tongues or anything like that. I think it's talking about our subject material today. He says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is exactly it. You could just... Get to the place where you're like, God, I have so much to say and I just don't even know what to say. I'm so mad. I'm so freaked out. You're nowhere to be seen. I don't know why you would leave me. I don't know why any of this is happening. I don't even know how to pray right now. I don't even know if I want to pray right now. And the whole time God is just finishing your thought. He knows more comprehensively how you feel than even you are able to understand. Why? Because he has shared this moment with us. He has shared it with us. It's a communal suffering. So here's the big question before you and me today. How does a sufferer actually get to this place of confident celebration? Because we're about to see everything change a little bit. So go back to Psalm 22. I'm going to pick it up where we left off, and we're going to drive it into the finish. Because this is interesting how he, how he changes his, his tone, his posture even. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he has cried to him. Boy, this is very different than what we were just reading, isn't it? I mean, he really took a U-turn, it sounds like. Verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat in worship before him shall bow and all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. By the way, that last little phrase, that he has done it, the language is similar in its structure to it is finished. It was just uttered from the cross. So there is, it's coming full circle, how this is a passion psalm. 
The big question, how does a sufferer do what David just did? Go from, why have you forsaken me, to you have heard me and it is finished. How does that work? I will say traveling from an honest lament to an honest celebration, not where we're faking it, but a real celebration, traveling from an honest lament to an honest celebration is a journey that has a lot of turns to it and is a little bit longer than we think it's going to be. Right? I mean, you might have noticed in the first half of this psalm how there's a lot of back and forth going on. You can kind of feel it in the mood. And that's because there's a little chunk where David's kind of looking within himself and kind of talking about what he feels and what he sees. And then he just kind of turns and he remembers what God has done and, and rehearses the character of God. But then he goes back to the dogs and the bulls and how he's poured out and, and everything. And then he goes back to how God has never let the forefathers down. He goes back and forth and back and forth. That makes sense. We do the same. We alternate. I could do that in the same few minutes. Alternate like that. I could, I could get some solid sleep over something that's going on in my life on one night, and then the very next night, I could lose total sleep over the very same thing. I could go from singing to the Lord to panicking under my breath in the same five minutes. I could be depressed on Sunday and be totally fine by Tuesday. You know what I'm talking about because you're the same as I am. You do the same thing. We go back and forth all the time. We alternate between trusting our senses, what we see and what we feel, and we alternate between that and trusting what we know about God to be true, the character of God. So we go back and forth between how we trust ourselves and our senses to the Lord. I mean, is this... Well, I'll just say it this way. Your suffering will fit this passage, whatever you're going through, however you entered this room today, because this passage plums the depth of the harshest suffering ever suffered. No pain has ever been felt like it has on this level. No level of forsakenness or suffering has ever been experienced to the degree it's being described in this passage. It plums the very depth, but our basic things fit. How hard it is to raise kids. How hard it is to groom our marriage. How difficult it is just to get a solid week's worth of work in with all of the stupid thorns and thistles and the repeatable problems all the time. Or why we're sick all the time and we can't get better. Or why depression comes when it comes. That fits. This is borrowable. Because we're sharing this. I think failing to trust God's character and focusing on what we sense, what we see and what we feel, I think this is why many people don't suffer well. Suffer well. I'll use air quotes, right? Because a lot of us, we don't know what that means, but we hear it all the time, right? Hey, are you suffering well? I don't know. What does that, what does that mean exactly, <laughs> to suffer well? I think it's an important question, though, because the average Christian sufferer, I think, is a little less than average at suffering. I think when the suffering finds a disciple of Christ, finds a disciple oftentimes in a place where they're having to have important talks with God, and they only have a casual relationship with this God. And that's a very difficult conversation. This is why it feels awkward for many of you. Prayer in the middle of suffering. You might have noticed this when you're suffering and you find yourself to a place of prayer. The awkwardness of it is because you're having high-value talks with someone you're just a casual acquaintance with. You've not done a lot of time with God on that level. No, no one really has intimate-value talks with a casual acquaintance, right? I mean, you've sat on an airplane before. You get to know the person next to you, but not really. You know what I'm saying? Because you're stuck there with them. So prayer comes with difficulty. 
Because a lot of us, I believe, feel like we're conversing with a near stranger in a very dire moment. But let's think about that for a minute. Because of the greatest fruits suffering can give us, and it does bring fruit, deep relationship is it. I mean, some people have been known to say that suffering is the fertilizer for deeper relationships. I guess I get that. I understand why that's true. I mean, when I struggle with my wife, um, that's a fertilizer for a depth. We, we grow in depth. When I struggle with some of you and we, we might lock horns or disagree with something, we, we will get deeper once we get to the other side of it. I, it's true for God. I find that to be a, a, a true statement. And see, casual encounters, they don't have any choice but to evolve. They have to evolve. You can't just forever, as a Christian, endorse and really believe what others in front of you have told you to believe. Whether it's a youth pastor or me or mom and dad, you're going to end up experiencing it eventually. This is what's happening in Job's life, Job 42. At the very end of Job's, I guess, execution sentence, his Psalm 22, which was a pretty long one, Job says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. What is he saying right there? He's saying, I I was floating along believing in you, but because I was hearing things about you, I was borrowing things and just believing it, but now I get it, now I see it, now I taste it, now I felt it. I've been there. Listen, if you want depth with God, it will often, often, capital O, often come via suffering. It will. My greatest bonding moments with my Jesus happened over a puddle of tears with doom hanging over my head. You cannot borrow that from me. You will have to experience it yourself. I can tell you how hard it was and how beautiful it is. You won't get it until you experience it yourself. But I do know that when I searched for God in that moment and I found him and he was suffering with me, and he he did more than just come up next to me and give me a side hug. He loved me deeply and I was bolted together in such a way that I was able to, to, to function when suffering greeted me again. I didn't find myself having an odd conversation with someone I barely know. Of course, suffering has the potential of doing the opposite because we all know there are those who just don't suffer very well, right? It's the opposite. On the path between lamenting and celebration, they never quite get the celebration. They kind of circle the broken cul-de-sac of suffering all the time, always fixating on those who hurt them, always focusing on their feelings above the truth, always just becoming hardened calcifying, rehearsing repeatedly the same broken things that are happening all the time. So this sufferer, they might make it through that moment of suffering, but they won't make it intact. They won't be integrated. They'll be disintegrated. They won't groom a deeper relationship. It just breaks them instead, kind of removes their vision and their confidence and their hope. So to sufferers like that, stories like Job, they just don't make any sense. You know, you tell them the story of Job, and they're like, yeah, 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 I got it. He gets more of God, but, 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 but then why? I mean, does he get more stuff back, and, and does he get his kids back? And I don't even understand. I mean, I would want to know exactly why God is doing that. I would want answers from God. They're not suffering well. They're not suffering well. So how do we make it from honest lament to honest celebration? The answer is just shifting focus from the king that wrote this to the king that fulfilled it. From the king that wrote it to the king that fulfilled it, because Christ is the center and the soul, not only of this book, but of the psalm that we're in right now, who underwent a real execution, and he fulfilled the depth of being forsaken. That's what we read in Mark and in the other Gospels when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting this psalm. And to this, we know that God would say, 
my son, I've forsaken you because what you have on your shoulders, the totality of all that's broken in mankind and all of creation, all that's broken there is worthy of wrath, for justice to be met, for anger to be spent, for substitution to be made, there must be a total forsakenness felt by you instead of Luke Thomas. There must be a total forsakenness felt by you instead of Mark Lewis, instead of Clint, instead of Jonathan, instead of fill in your name. He stood in our stead to feel something that we had coming to us. The total forsakenness. I mean, I think what happens is, is when we get to this part of the passage, we get nervous as Christians, right? And so we chop down what it means to be forsaken. And we figure in our mind, it's kind of like when mom and dad forgot the kid at Kroger, right? And they get all the way out to the car and they're like, oh gosh, I need more sleep. They go in and the manager's there with their kid. Hey, I promise I'm not a bad parent. You know, I mean, that happens all the time in every Kroger everywhere. I know it does, right? Or, or when a spouse leaves another spouse for an illicit lover. We think of forsakenness on that. But th th those are moments that are bad, maybe even real bad, but has boundaries to it. It has boundaries. But this level of being forsaken exceeds all boundaries. It's not like the common feeling of being abandoned or left or forsaken. This has never been experienced before this time. This is very different. Charles Spurgeon said that this, this moment of forsakenness, was the blackness and the darkness and of Jesus' personal horror, and it penetrated the very depths and the caverns of his suffering. This was it. We can't even compute with our finite minds what this felt like. And he experienced it in our stead so that we never would have to. I've heard people ask, what, what do you think was happening in Jesus' soul during this time? I think it's a good question. I don't think we'll get an answer to it. I mean, come on. What's going on in the soul of the Son of God in the middle of being forsaken? I couldn't answer that for you. Not honestly. But David, David gives us an idea of what it looks like. Of what it looks like and what it feels like to be forsaken. And he does two key things. And these are going to be the things that I hope you remember as we walk out of here. Verses 3 and 5, they say something very interesting. He says, and this is when he takes his eyes off of his own senses, what he feels and what he sees. And he says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were rescued. And you they trusted and we're not put to shame. So David is reminding himself out loud of who God is, as God's character in times past shows us. So for David, this might have been him kind of reaching back into the Exodus story, maybe, or some other story, maybe some of his own personal stories he was able to kind of cherry pick from. Moments where others were trusting and waiting and felt forsaken, but God did not abandon them. David is just reassuring himself out loud that God is, in fact, righteous. And even though it looks like evil is triumphing, it, in fact, is not. He's preaching to himself. He's preaching to the Lord. Even he's saying, Lord, I, I have no idea where you are or why you're not with me now. But I see in tougher times you never left your people. In more tender moments you were there the whole time. I know that. He's rehearsing that for himself right here. We see him switch to it real quickly. Now, we have the same call to do the same thing in our lives, except we have a gospel picture that we can always grab from. We don't have to grab from the original Exodus story. Feel free to do it. It's a great story, but we have a better Exodus, don't we? 
we have a better exodus. Where in the middle of us feeling forsaken, we are able to say, Lord, I have no idea where you're at. And I don't know why you have forsaken me, but I do know one thing. I have a gospel picture in front of me. I have this beautiful picture where not only do you understand being forsaken, but when all of humanity walking all over the earth thought that God had left them, you actually beat death in our receipt, the risen Christ's receipt, that God does not abandon his people. We have something better. We have a better exodus. And then he does something else, just as helpful for me in verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. And then we, we get a little bit of a picture in that verse and the verses around it that this is a personal God to David and not a casual acquaintance, not a bump and run relationship. David and his God, they've got history here. History. Lots of lots of prayers in the middle of the night. Lots of high anxious moments. Lots of betrayal where they've got some time together. He's clocked in. He's been very disciplined. He's put a lot of intentionality into this. David is not having to trust what mom and dad told him about God. David is not having to trust a youth pastor. David is not having to trust a pastor, even a good pastor. David has felt it. He's traveled through this tough place. You know, we have an intimacy that we are called to build, and it comes with great work and discipline. It does not just happen. It does not just accidentally happen out of thin air, just nowhere. It just doesn't magically happen that way. It requires great effort. And as I said earlier, a lot of times, a lot of suffering. That's what it takes. So this is important because maneuvering from lament to celebration is something that I think is lacking in the life of the average Christian, something that we all need to work on because all of us in here are hurting over something or feel left or forsaken. And then David leaves us on really strong ground. So go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read this to you as we walk our way out of this. Verse 23. It's one of my favorite parts of this psalm. David says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not. He has not. If you feel afflicted, he has not despised you or abhorred you. He doesn't roll his eyes when he looks at your affliction. He does not loathe your situation or the fact that you're hurting in it. That's what he's saying. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard. He has heard. He has heard when he was cried to. This was enough for David. You have heard me coming out of David's mouth. That's where suffering found its end. That's where suffering had found its end. It had run its course. David knows that God heard him, and that's enough for him. And then he finishes, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, even you and me today, on this day and this place. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And he has done it, and it is finished. And we look forward to a day where lamenting will no longer take place. There will be a day where there will be no such thing as lament. Just celebration. We skip that part. We just go straight to celebration. No more lamenting. No more forsaken feelings. No more feeling abandoned or left. No more feeling unloved. All of that ends. It ends. David saw it then. 
Christ fulfilled it, and this is borrowable for us. Our life fits inside this. Amen? Let me pray for you. Mark, you can go ahead and come up. Father, we thank you so much for being good to us. We thank you for being sweet. In the gospel, we have a story that we can go back to and say to ourselves, man, it looks horrible right now. It feels out of control right now. I feel alone right now. I feel unloved right now. I feel forsaken and left and abandoned and discarded right now. I feel all of those things, and I have emotions I don't even know how to put words to. I feel totally lost, and all I want to know, God, is that you hear me. God, do you hear me? But Father, we have what you have done on the cross and out of the tomb as a big vocal, I hear you. You were broken and you had need and I came and I delivered. So Father, just like David, we could reach back and take that and say, you you heard. And you are no less attentive now. No less attentive now. And you don't loathe the afflictions of the afflicted. So, Lord, we carry our big bag of hurts in here. We carry all of that in here, but we do lay them down at the cross. Help us, Father, as a church, be honest in our lament, but not just to flail for flailing's sake, just to be angry because David's never angry in this psalm. He's just desperate. So help us get from a place of honest lament to a place of honest celebration where we can say, it is finished. He has heard me. He has done it. Help us navigate that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You are so kind and so thoughtful. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you that when we read it, it assesses and it speaks into our life. And that not only was it God-inspired, but it's God-illuminated as it comes off the page. That it is a very supernatural act in reading the Bible. It's a supernatural act, not a natural one. Help us as a church by the power of your Spirit not treat that book as a common book. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your steady voice into our life, even as that voice culminates in a perfect son who lived, died, and lived again for us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. And I'm carrying it again. And i got to go back and do it again, and i got to go back and do it again, over and over and over again, it feels like. Morning, noon, and night. I think some of us in this room are like this. We've carried burdens in here that, we've just gotten used to carrying around. Betrayals that we've just had a hard time putting down and not picking back up. Fears, a level of destruction coming over us that we feel like any moment, we just can't put it down. Having a hard time trusting the Lord. Go ahead and stand with me. Listen, as we go into worship, as we go into just a moment where the team will come up and they will lead us, There is room for us to repent in this. As we sing, as we take the elements in the back as a church, there's room for us, those of us who escape, who like to find escapes, there's room for you to put that before the Lord. Because it's an idol. It's a place where you're struggling. Know that those escapes are temporary. I think some of us are quiet when we should be vocal. I think some of us are struggling, feeling alone because we have burdens and nobody knows about them. You might actually be in a living room full of people during the week and you're laughing and telling the same stories and yet you're locked down like a vault. No one knows what's going on in your life. And that's pride and that's to be repented for. And then I think some of us in here were just very loud. 
We know that vocalizing it to other people, it just feels therapeutic in the moment. We might even have a bunch of compassionate listeners, but listen, if you're loud and the megaphone is in your hand and you have no problem petitioning the people around you, but you're hesitant to recruit God into that or to fall upon the cross to do that for you, it's never going to move. Those people can't do anything for you, friend. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do in your life. That is a load only he can move. There's plenty of room to repent here. So when you pray, you're praying to the one well acquainted with grief and burden. He carried the whole world's brokenness on his back. But yet when he comes back, there will be no burden on him. Think about that for a moment. Think about the space he's creating for you too. It's a place of no burden. It's a place of no burden. We left the garden as beasts of burden, living through toil and trial. Christ is going to come back and rescue us into a place prepared for us where there is no burden, no chaos, no fright, no panic, no betrayal, no insecurity, no vanity. Just an eclipsing sense of God's glory before us. That's good news for me. That's good news for me. I need that. Psalm 55 is a great psalm for the panicked heart, for the overburdened heart. Whenever you are struggling and you are overburdened and you cannot move forward, go to Psalm 55 and let it lead you to the foot of the cross where you cast your burden. And if you've got to do it again the next day, totally fine. Got to do it the day after that, it's totally fine. Morning, noon, and night, we're constantly doing that, right? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for how sweet you are, for caring for us. We thank you that, Lord, there's not a burden we feel that you have not felt. There's not a betrayal that we feel that you have not felt. In fact, everything that we feel in this thing called being overburdened is just partial compared to what you have felt. And so, Lord, we ask that you confront and encourage the burdened heart in this room. I know that we have burdens. We carry them in here with us. We put them down. We pick them back up. They're too much. We don't even know what to call it. People know. Some people don't know. It, it's just a big mess. And we just pray that you would, you would contend with it. You would show us that praying with you and speaking with you and begging you to send your spirit to take the burden away from us is the safest place we can be. And that it's not a sign of immaturity to do it repeatedly. It's just a sign of Christianity. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're very good to us, very kind to us. And as we pray, as we worship, as we take communion, as we write checks, as we shake hands, as we greet each other, as we eat together, as we do all the things that a church should do today, we would do so in remembrance of the great act of you coming as a man of burden to people of burden to lift our burden. So we love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Mm-hmm.